This morning we're in Revelation chapter 15. And again, Father, we ask that you bless now the reading of your word. Speak to our hearts, Lord, as we study these scriptures. Lord, there's much that you want to say to us today. Give us ears to hear what your spirit would teach us. In Jesus' name, amen. Every December, our family has an annual tradition. We call it the ABC, the Adams Bowl Championship. We have a trophy. We even have T-shirts. We have rules. We have a scoring system. Over time, this has grown into a sophisticated competition. Everyone tries to predict the winner of the college football bowl games. My daughter Natalie is the reigning champion, by the way. Some of us put a lot of time and effort into our prognostications. Others of us, mostly the female variety, base their predictions on favorite colors. Oh, I like blue over orange. I'll take Duke. You have to be born in Adams or you have to marry in Adams in order to compete. This year, the big concern, of course, is what impact COVID-19 is going to have on the bowls and obviously on our contest. I said all that to say this. Revelation 15 and 16 are about bowls, seven bowls. But these bowls are not games. There is nothing fun or festive about these bowls. There's no trophy. No t-shirts associated with these bowls, only peril and pain and punishment. See, these bowls are no contest. God's justice, his wrath will bowl the world over. And it's not difficult to pick the losers in these bowls. It's the people who rebel against Jesus and pledge their allegiance to Satan and the beast. But I'm not sure there are any winners here either. For I know a loving God doesn't consider the judgment of sinners a win. His victory is our salvation. He grieves our defiance and the death and devastation it causes. If there is a winner in these seven bowls, it's God's righteousness. For in the end, his warnings will prove true. His word will be verified. Evil gets punished. Sin is a debt that really does come due Creatures are responsible to their creator. In the end, earth's tenants are accountable to the landlord. Most of all, these seven bold judgments teach us that God don't play. His judgments are no game. There are issues more important to God than our happiness and our good times. A holy God demands righteousness. There is a right and a wrong. And God is the arbitrator of both. He expects us to live and treat each other his way. God requires us to do what's right, which makes these bowls deadly serious business. They are the ultimate result of our unrighteousness. Chapter 15 is what you would call a bowl special. It's a preview of what's coming. Then in chapter 16, the Lord and his angels go bowling. Verse 1 begins, then I saw another sign in heaven, great and marvelous, seven angels having the seven last plagues, for in them the wrath of God is complete. 
Now, there's 21 judgments mentioned in the book of Revelation. In chapter 6, seven seals are broken and judgments ensue. In chapters 8 and 9, seven trumpet blasts issue God's judgment. Now in chapter 16, seven bowls or seven basins brimming with judgment are emptied out on the earth. There are Bible commentators who try to fit these 21 plagues into a nice chronological order. I'm not so sure about that. There's probably a lot of overlap here, especially the closer you get to the end of the seven years of great tribulation. You remember in Matthew chapter 24, the Olivet Discourse, there Jesus told us, unless those days were shortened, no flesh would be saved. In other words, the judgments will become so severe, it can't last forever. That's what we see here. These bowls cripple the earth to the point where the planet can no longer sustain human life. These seven plagues have to be God's final judgments. As John says, seven angels having the seven last plagues, for in them the wrath of God is complete. You know, if you've ever been to a hockey game, you've seen a fight break out between the players. In fact, most people go to a hockey fight and hope a game breaks out. But when two hockey players get into a fisticuffs, the first thing they always do is they pull off their gloves. They take off their gloves. If you really want to impact someone, if you want to inflict pain on someone, the padded gloves have to go. Well, Revelation chapters 15 and 16 could be titled, When God's Gloves Come Off. Because from this point forward, God is no longer cushioning his blows. He's going to land a flurry of combination punches. God is going for the knockout. By chapter 15, God has a rebellious planet on the ropes. Seven bowls are what drop it to the canvas. Verse 2, And I saw something like a sea of glass mingled with fire. Now the book of Revel, the book, I'm sorry, the book of Hebrews reveals a fascinating, fascinating insight to us. It tells us that the Jewish temple was really a small-scale model of God's throne room in heaven. Hebrews nine verse twenty-four makes this comment: For Christ has not entered the holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. In other words, if you want a glimpse of heaven, then examine the temple on earth. And one of the features of Solomon's temple was the bronze laver. It was a bowl of water where the priests would wash and tidy up. Well, here in Revelation chapter 15, verse 2, God see, John sees its prototype in heaven, its heavenly equivalent. And he calls it a sea. I saw something like a sea of glass mingled with fire. John sees a body of water in heaven. It's motionless. It looks like glass. It has a fiery tint as if stained with blood. And he sees those who have the victory over the beast over his image and over his mark and over the number of his name, standing on the sea of glass, having harps of God. In other words, they're standing where the priests once washed. 
You see, heaven's inhabitants are already clean. That's why here the martyrs, those who suffered for Christ's sake in the tribulation, will be standing on the sea as a testimony to God's salvation. Now notice John sees these people who have the victory over the beast. But we might say, wait a minute, the Antichrist has put them to death because they refused his mark of worship. How can you say they were victorious over the beast? Well, realize victory in the Christian life is sometimes won by escaping tribulation, but at other times it's won by enduring tribulation. God gives the church an escape. He raptures us, whereas he'll give the tribulation believers endurance in the face of their suffering. Remember, this is the first time that we see here these saints standing on the sea of glass. And I want you to remember this the next time you're confronted with a temptation or a fear or some doubt. Don't just look to God for an escape hatch. You know, you might want to strengthen, he might want to strengthen you for the trial. Rather than get out, he could want you to go through. It's only through difficulty and trial that we find wings that we didn't know we had. Through him, we overcome. And so here in chapter 15, verse 2, on the eve of God's final judgments, he gives the earth a glimpse of heaven. And he points to the martyred saints who stood for Jesus on earth, now standing in heaven as proof of his righteousness. They alone justify the judgments that are about to come. Verse 3 tells us, And they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying. And you can check out the lyrics to Moses' song in Exodus chapter 15. It's recorded for us in the Old Testament. Verses 3 and 4 provide the lyrics of the Lamb's song. But before we look at those lyrics, I want to clear up some confusion about the music we'll hear in heaven. Notice verse 2. The musicians on the glassy sea have harps. And I know what some of you are thinking. No, no, no. Not harps. Please not harps. There are folks, including myself, who can't bear the thought of spending eternity listening to the sound of a boring harp. That would not be very heavenly. But there are benefits to thorough Bible study. And I did a little research. And according to the Vines Expository Dictionary of New Testament words, Vines Dictionary no less, the Greek term kathara, that's translated here, harps, can also be rendered guitar. (laughs) Breathe easy, friends. The guys on the glassy sea may well be jamming with electric guitars, with Les Pauls and Stratocasters. Jesus is the rock that doesn't roll, thus there's got to be some rock and roll in heaven as far as I'm concerned. I will say this, everybody in heaven is harping on Jesus. They are. He's all that heaven talks about. Everyone is full of praise and love and adoration for the lion and the lamb. And they have no idea why we are so silent. And here's what they sing. Great and marvelous are your works, Lord God Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the saints. 
Who shall not fear you, O Lord, and glorify your name? Who shall not? For you alone are holy. For all nations shall come and worship before you. For your judgments have been manifested. God is about to pour out scalding hot bowls of judgment on the earth. In fact, we're going to read later that wicked men will respond with blasphemy. But those in heaven praise the Lamb for the same judgments. For his ways, they say, are true and just. God alone is holy. Heaven praises what the world resents. You know, it's what you see in a courtroom. You know, when the verdict comes down, the guilty start to squirm and the victims take heart. And that's what we find here. Verse 5. After these things I looked, and behold, the temple of the tabernacle and of the testimony in heaven was opened. And out of the temple came the seven angels, having the seven plagues, clothed in pure bright linen, and having their chests girded with golden bands. These angels are wearing priestly garb. They've come out of the temple there in heaven. Then one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls, full of the wrath of God, who lives forever and ever. These seven bowls are sloshing over with red-hot wrath. These bowls have been heated to a boil. It's finally the final judgment. And notice the fireworks in heaven. The temple was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power. And no one was able to enter the temple till the seven plagues of the seven angels were completed. Heaven fills with smoke as the earth is about to get smoked. Been waiting all week to say that. It's going to be lights out for this wicked world. He says, Then I heard a loud voice from the temple saying to the seven angels, Go and pour out the bowls of the wrath of God on the earth. And so the first went and poured out his bowl upon the earth, and a foul and loathsome sore came upon the men who had the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. Notice this, the irony of this. People who proudly accepted the mark as a follower of the beast will now be marked by God with a vile and festering sore. Their loyalty turns into a lesion. Some folks see here these foul and loathsome sores as having to do with nuclear radiation, perhaps the fallout of a nuclear bomb. When atomic bombs were dropped on Hiroshima, people who didn't die in the blast were tortured from the radiation burns that followed. John Hersey, in his book Hiroshima, he paints a vivid picture of the survivors. He says, faces were wholly burned. Eye sockets were hollow. Fluid from melted eyes ran down cheeks. Mouths were swollen, pus-covered wounds. The victims broke out with running sores and ended up dying slow, painful, torturous deaths. Perhaps that's what's going on here. Another possibility is that these sores could be a mass outbreak of melanoma or skin cancer caused by an overexposure to the sun. We'll see that the fourth bowl gives power to the sun to scorch human beings. Whatever the cause, the first bowl sees to it that the worshipers of the beast realize that God is not pleased. But watch out, for another bowl is emptied out in verse 3. Then the second angel poured out his bowl on the sea, 
and it became blood as of a dead man. And every living creature in the sea died. Notice these angels have aim. They always hit their targets. The first angel had the worshipers of the beast in his crosshairs. Now the second angel targets the seas. And here an environmental disaster of unparalleled proportion results. This makes the Gulf oil spill a few years ago look like baby's drool. The earth's oceans are poisoned. The seven seas turn toxic. Fish and seals and plankton die. Waters that teem to life suddenly die. No more sushi. In Revelation chapter 8 verse 8, when the second trumpet blasted, we were told something like a great mountain burning with fire was thrown into the sea and a third of the sea became blood. There we discuss the very real possibility of the earth being impacted by a meteorite or a comet. You know, the mineral composition of an object from space would be high in iron. Thus, it could be that the iron injected into the oceans here turns the waters a blood red. You know, we've talked about this before. But astronomers have now detected over 18,000 NEOs, or what's called near-Earth objects. In fact, just last month, September, 244 new asteroids were added to the registry. With all due respect to global warming theorists, NASA director Jim Bridenstine identified an asteroid strike as Earth's biggest threat. He suggested that developing an asteroid defense was a bigger space priority than sending a man back to the moon or to Mars. See, the Earth has been hit by cosmic projectiles before. And my reading of Revelation suggests that it'll happen again. It could bring about many of these judgments we read about. Of course, there are other possible explanations. Red tide is a phenomenon caused by saltwater, a saltwater parasite. It turns the ocean red and it kills the fish. Ironically, the organism's nickname is the sail from hell. And God may use neither asteroid or parasite. God can just say, let there be blood and there'll be blood. When you're God, you can do whatever you want. The possible doomsday scenarios are endless. How it happens is conjecture. That it happens is a certainty. We're told, then the third angel poured out his bowl on the rivers and springs of water, and they became blood. This is why the bold judgments have to occur within a few days of Jesus' return. For human beings can live a maximum of maybe 10 days without water. If all the bottled waters and Coca-Colas in the world sustained us for a few more weeks, then earth's inhabitants might be able to survive maybe a month after this third angel pours out his bowl of wrath. And I know what some of you are thinking. Wait a minute, Sandy. God has been so loving, so gracious, so merciful to me. I didn't think he was capable of such judgments. See, that's why this third angel offers an explanation as he pours out his bowl. For John writes, And I heard the angel of the water saying, You are righteous, O Lord, the one who is and who was and who is to be, because you have judged these things. For they have shed the blood of saints and prophets, and you have given them blood to drink. 
for it is their just due. In the wake of all the suffering, our tendency is to forget that this world, what this we forget what this world did to deserve its punishment. But God doesn't forget. See, this Christ-rejecting world has innocent blood on its hands. That's what John says. That's what the angels said. That's why these judgments took place. For they have shed the blood of saints and prophets. The blood of saints and prophets certainly are on the world's hands. But there's other blood on our hands too. Since 1980, 1.6 billion unborn innocent children have been aborted. There's blood on our hands. Today, that would be 17% of the global population had those babies lived. You need to think about it. For every five people you meet, there's one person missing. And chances are they were murdered to avoid an inconvenience. God sees blood on this world's hands. Recall the Jews who stood before Pilate and cried for Jesus to be crucified. They shouted the ominous words, His blood be on us and on our children. Did that crowd have any idea what they were asking? Today, those martyred in Jesus' name, the innocent lives lost from war and genocide and vice and hatred, their blood joins in and cries out for God's vengeance. You know, we might get squeamish in the face of judgment, but not God. His judgments are just and true, the angel says. You are righteous, O Lord. God doles out their just due. And heaven isn't finished defending God's righteous wrath. In verse 7, John writes, And I heard another, maybe another angel, from the altar saying, Even so, Lord God Almighty, True and righteous are your judgments. See, don't make the mistake of seeing just one side of God's heart. Yes, he is kind and he is benevolent. He's merciful and gracious, but his mercy comes at a steep price. Understand, God created the world in us in good faith. He's good. He's a good God and he loves us. Why would he expect anything other than our total compliance with his commands but that's not how we reacted is it adam and eve then you and me defied the creator's authority what is god to do just ignore it just let our sin slide let the puny little human mud daubers defy him unimpeded make a mockery of what he holds dear is that how god is to behave if god were that ambivalent that callous who would respect him no, God has to cast down those that challenge his authority. Realize there would have been no thought of mercy, only justice, had Jesus not stepped in between us and God. God decreed the wages of sin to be death. This is the price of God's mercy. Someone had to die for us. And Jesus assumes our penalty. He absorbed God's wrath on the cross. Jesus took upon himself all that we deserve, legally and physically and emotionally and spiritually. You know, when God sees a child molester or a wife beater 
or a rapist or a serial killer or a pimp or whatever. He gets really angry at sin. Yet God stored up all his wrath for one strategic moment. At the cross, he poured out all his feelings of disgust on his only son, Jesus. The hammer intended for sinners fell on Jesus. And for one reason, so that God could now treat mankind with mercy, not judgment. That's why if you neglect or if you ignore or if you reject Jesus and act as if God's mercy is no big deal, you'll find yourself under his judgment. And if you're that defiant, then you deserve what you get. But you can't fault God. Not at all. As the angel from under the altar cried out, Even so, Lord God Almighty, true and righteous are your judgments. And then verse 8, Then the fourth angel poured out his bowl on the sun, and power was given to him to scorch men with fire. Do I believe in global warming? Absolutely. We got it right here. When the fourth bowl is emptied, the world will heat up. And it is the result of human causes. Not greenhouse gases, but sin and rebellion. This is God's judgment. Say a meteorite rips through the ozone and leaves a hole. The sun would literally turn into a blowtorch and scorch the planet like a prairie fire. It's global warming like we have never imagined. God's wrath is heating up. Verse 9, and men were scorched with great heat. And you would think they'd repent. You'd think they'd cry out to God for his mercy. Instead, they blasphemed the name of God who has power over these plagues. And they did not repent and give him glory. God obviously has power to relieve the world of its suffering. But even in the face of the judgment, the world shakes its fist in God's face and insults him. Then the fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast. Again, when it comes to God's judgments, these angels are sharpshooters. God is ordering precise strikes against deliberate targets. The angel has the throne of the beast now in his scope. And when the bowl is poured out, his kingdom became full of darkness. Literally, lights out on planet earth. Thick darkness will engulf everything. It's so dark the sufferers can't perceive beyond their own blisters and sores. And so they sit and sulk and flail away in their pain. And then verse 10 describes their favorite pastime. They gnawed their tongues because of the pain. They blasphemed the God of heaven because of their pains and their sores and did not repent of their deeds. This seems unimaginable, doesn't it? How could they not repent? Why not tap out? Why not give up and yield to God? Well, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 provides the answer to that question. For there, Paul writes of the end times, the coming of the lawless one is according to the working of Satan with all power, signs, and lying wonders, and with all unrighteous deception among those who perish, because they did not receive the love of the truth that they might be saved. And for this reason, God will send them strong delusion that they should believe the lie that they all may be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure 
in unrighteousness. The Antichrist will capture people's allegiance. He'll be persuasive, even working miracles. Paul calls them lying wonders. And to execute his judgment in an expeditious way, God will seal their rebellion by casting upon them a strong delusion. The inhabitants of this earth will end up believing not just a lie, but Paul calls it the lie. What is that? Recall what happened at the Tower of Babel. The world came under the sway of another charismatic leader, a one-world ruler, Nimrod, convinced the world that God was the bad guy and that he was the good guy. See, rather than hold people accountable for their sin, Nimrod taught them to ignore their sin and blame God for its consequences. Big bad God was the person responsible for this global flood, the earth being destroyed with water. Nimrod would protect them from God. That's why they built the large tower in the middle of the desert. Why do you build a tower in the middle of the desert? Unless you're afraid of somebody flooding. Nimrod said, I'll protect you from God. See, I believe this is the lie, the strong delusion that hardens the rebellion of the last days. It's the age-old lie that God is bad and that man is good. It's how Satan tempted Eve. He told her that God wanted to stunt her growth. If you eat of the fruit, your eyes will be open and you'll be like God. God wants to deprive you, Eve. Defying God and following Satan is what brings enlightenment. And this is the spirit of our day. Biblical Christianity is depicted as repressive and intolerant. That's what's responsible for the last 2,000 years of war and hatred and oppression and prejudice. It's Christianity. Satan is still selling the lie. Biblical Christianity is what's holding us back. Open your eyes, people. Find the God that's within you. Shed the shackles of Christianity. And all that's left for the devil today is to introduce the beast. Well, verse 12 tells us, Then the sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates, and its water was dried up so that the way of the kings from the east might be prepared. And now from this point forward in the book, the stage will be set for the final battle, what we call the Battle of Armageddon. It'll be a clash between the armies of this world and the armies of Jesus. And one of the major players in this battle to end all battles are the kings of the east. Daniel 11 is another prophecy that sees this same event. The Antichrist will invade Israel and he'll be attacked by Syria from the north and by Egypt from the south. But to no avail, the only hindrance to the plans of the beast is news of armies approaching from the east. Who is that? I don't know. Is it the Chinese perhaps? Is it a confederacy of nations perhaps? All we're told is how they reach the battlefield. They march into the plain of Megiddo through a dried-up riverbed. Traditionally, the Euphrates River is the boundary between east and west. It's 1,800 miles long. In places, it's about two-thirds of a mile wide and about 30 feet deep. This riverbed will be the highway to hell. This is the path that the kings of the east will take to come into the Middle East. 
Here's the road that these eastern armies take to Armageddon. In 1990, Turkey finished a dam whereby they can now shut off the headwaters that fill up the Euphrates. The Ataturk Dam has diminished the water level in the Euphrates by a third, and it's caused tremendous tensions between Syria and Iraq, uh, Turkey's downstream neighbors. I believe this dam might one day aid the kings of the east as they approach Armageddon. Again, as we mentioned last week, everything in this section now is leading up to the battle of Armageddon. In verse 13, John writes, And I saw three unclean spirits, or demons, like frogs, coming out of the mouth of the dragon, out of the mouth of the beast, and out of the mouth of the false prophet. This is pretty gross if you ask me. Demons like frogs issuing from a man's mouth. Makes you want to croak. (laughs) Should have saw that coming. You know, some of you ladies are thinking that if you kiss enough frogs, you'll find your prince. You might find a demon. I think I'd just pray and trust God to bring me a husband. That's probably the better way to do it. You know, it's said of these frogs, for they are spirits of demons performing signs which go out to the kings of the earth and of the whole world to gather them to the battle of that great day of God Almighty. These demons deceive and coax the nations to the final showdown. Jesus speaks in verse 15, and in my Bible it's in red letters. You know it's Jesus. Behold, I am coming as a thief. Blessed is he who watches and keeps his garments lest he walk naked and they see his shame, and they gather them together to the place called in Hebrew Armageddon, which literally means the valley of Megiddo or the mountain of Megiddo. Megiddo is an ancient city that sat on the southern boundary of the Jezreel Valley. This has been the site of numerous battles down through the centuries. It's where Deborah and Barak defeated the Canaanites. It's where Gideon upset the Midianites. It's where Saul died at the hands of the Philistines. And it's where the British general Allenby defeated the Turks in World War I. The valley is presently a big expanse of farmland with one exception. There's now an Israeli Air Force base in the middle of the valley. Isn't that interesting? Planes from Megiddo can now fly sorties to Syria and Iran. When Napoleon Bonaparte saw the valley of Megiddo, he remarked, all the armies of the world could maneuver for battle here. And one day soon they will. The term battle of Armageddon is actually a misnomer. Megiddo simply serves as the staging area for the armies of the world as they move against Jerusalem. The final conflict is really the battle of Jerusalem. We'll talk about this in two weeks when we get to Revelation 19. Verse 17 tells us, Then the seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air. And notice again the target, the air. Remember who the Bible refers to as the prince of the power of the air. Ephesians 2 verse 2 coins this term as a title for Satan. And this is why Satan has so much influence today on broadcast media, on hotspots, on Wi-Fi. He spreads so much of his filth through the air. 
And apparently this seventh and final bold judgment is aimed at Satan himself and his vast domain. God is going to defeat the devil at the pinnacle of his power in the air. And a loud voice came out of the temple of heaven from the throne saying, It is done. Or literally, it is finished. That wording harkens back to the cross of Jesus, doesn't it? On the cross, Jesus redeemed the creation. He bought it back. It was finished. But here, he takes possession of what he's redeemed. With this final bowl of judgment, Jesus will evict the squatters. He'll secure for himself what belongs to him. It is finished, he says. And then verse 18. And there were noises and thunderings and lightnings. And there was a great earthquake. Such a mighty and great earthquake as had not occurred since men were on the earth. A great quake blows up the Richter scale. Finally, it's the big one. But its epicenter isn't the San Andreas fault. It's in the Middle East. Verse 19. Now the great city was divided into three parts. The great city is probably Jerusalem. Today, Jerusalem is a divided city. East Jerusalem is Arab. West Jerusalem is Jewish. But you think Jerusalem is divided now. Here God will split it into three. And this earthquake not only impacts Israel. There's a ripple effect. We're told, and the cities of the nations fail. Here's a geological event that's enormous. It impacts cities all around the globe. Imagine New York and London and Rome and Beijing and Moscow and Tokyo. All these cities turn to rubble because of this earthquake. You know, it's interesting that all the ancient calendars operated on 12 30-day months. It was a symmetrical path around the sun. An annual total of 360 days. Yet today's solar year is an asymmetrical 365 and a quarter days. Something tipped the earth's axis. And it caused a wobble. What caused our wobble? Well, geologists speculate that in earth's past we took a direct hit from a cosmic projectile. A comet or a meteor or an asteroid knocked the planet off its orbit. And if it happened once, it can happen again. John mentions the impact of this strike on another city. We're told, and great Babylon was remembered before God to give her the cup of the wine of the fierceness of his wrath. Jerusalem has always been God's capital on earth, whereas Babylon has been the city of Satan. And here Babylon is made to gulp down a cup of the fierceness of God's wrath. She tastes his judgment as well. And then verse 20, then every island fled away. Wow. The heat from the fourth bowl will melt the ice caps, the polar caps. Scientists say that if that happened, the sea level would rise 200 feet across the globe. Today's coastal cities would all disappear. And the mountains were not found. Expect tidal waves and tsunamis when the continental plates shift. All the earth's topography is headed for a radical facelift. Surveyors, beware. All the topo maps will be wrong. Verse 21. 
And great hail from heaven fell upon men, each hailstone about the weight of a talent. Now, a talent was an ancient Hebrew measurement. It was the equivalent of about 100 pounds. Think 100-pound hailstones. When my younger brother lived in Dallas, he complained about the hail, the size of golf balls, putting dents in his pickup truck. Imagine hailstones the size of a beach ball or bigger. There are all kinds of theories of what might cause such a phenomenon. But again, don't miss the obvious. Recall the Old Testament penalty for blasphemy. Do you remember what it was in the Old Testament? If you blaspheme God, you remember how you were punished? It was stoning. Here is heaven throwing the rocks at the blasphemous earth. This vile and wicked world has blasphemed God. There's blood on its hands. And God is responding with a punishment that befits its crime. And yet, despite it all, men blaspheme God because of the plague of the hell, since that plague was exceedingly great. People fail to get the point. The world's reaction is proof of the hardness of their hearts. Rather than repent, they stiffen their necks, they dig in their heels, and they continue in their diehard rebellion, which leads us to what happens next. But I hope we get it. I hope we get the point. Friends, you are not God. That's the point of this. You're not God. You are a creature made in God's image, and you are accountable to Him. You're not free to do as you please and follow your own heart, despite what the movies tell you. This is not the path to enlightenment, but to darkness and to death. Revelation 16 teaches us that this world is going to follow its heart straight to hell. I'm sure no one wants to go to hell. But if the path you're on is headed there and you stay on that path, then don't be surprised if that's where you end up. Repent means to turn. It means to turn. God's bowls are not games. He isn't playing here. His bowls are serious business. Don't you get bowled over. Turn to Jesus while you can. And you can. You can today. He loves you and he's provided a way. This is why his son died in your place. And you can receive him today. If you have faith. Father, we thank you. For your word to us this morning, Lord. We thank you, Lord, for these powerful chapters. And Lord, it's sobering to realize what's ahead for planet earth. Lord, these truths are real. We believe your word. We believe these prophecies of old. And as we see many of them coming to pass in our day, Lord, it alerts us. And we realize, Lord, the fate of this world. And and included in that is the fate of many of our friends, many of our own family. Lord, we pray for them today. We pray for those who don't know Jesus. 
Lord, I pray for those under the sound of my voice, those that are here in the room, but also those that are watching on the internet, on the online uh, recording. Lord, I pray for them. And Lord, I pray that if there's someone out there who has yet to bow their knee to Jesus and ask him to be their Lord and Savior, that they would do so today. Lord, we, uh, we look to you, Lord. We thank you that your mercy is still available, that your grace is still on display and still for, our, uh, for us to receive. And so work in our hearts this morning, Lord. We love you. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.